Welcome to Wizardist. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 16. Today in the studio, I've got Ben Fruman, the editor-in-chief at theweek.com, which is the digital arm of the publication The Week. Uh, The Week, for those that don't know, is a weekly roundup of the best in news, mostly politically oriented news um, from both sides of the aisle and uh, started as a British publication and the U.S. version is just more important than ever right now, um, giving a balanced and rational look at news in the U.S. um, from uh, the best of what other publishers are doing as well as original pieces. Uh, Ben's been at the week for, I think, six or seven years um, He graduated from Columbia University with a master's degree in journalism, um, and before that studied psychology and political science. uh, And I think that sort of gives a good framework to the way that Ben thinks about news and thinks about the world. Our conversation was really fun to have around, um, of course, not only the politics of the day, but about news and about the business of news. Um, Ben is a big advocate of the subscription model and sort of the uh, way that it liberates media organizations to push and challenge their readers in a way that um, maybe are harder to do with uh, free ad-supported content. And of course, we talk about the general effects of social media and this idea of echo chambers and And really how to break out of that cycle. And The Week uh, is a big contributor in doing that. If you're interested, I definitely recommend checking out theweek.com. And this conversation hopefully will, if nothing else, make you a bit more self-aware as it made me about the way we spend our time, especially online. I want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. I am thankful that you are listening to this podcast and that... uh, I have people that want to hear these conversations and I truly, truly appreciate it. So um, have a great long weekend and I give you Ben Fruman, editor-in-chief at theweek.com. So thanks for coming by. Yeah, hey, my pleasure, man. Thanks, thanks for having uh, me. Thanks for doing the laugh test. Uh, of course, of course. That's my go-to move. With me. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever uh, people come in, I ask them to test the microphones by speaking loudly. And Ben was the first to point out that probably the loudest moment is when you laugh. So <laughs> now I'm going to ask everyone so, to do this. You know, I didn't know that I had a distinctive laugh until some of my colleagues told me that they could know where I was in the office because they would hear my laugh before I was in view. Like so, echolocation? Like yeah, dolphins totally. or something? Yeah, apparently you know? it's my signature sound, but I had no idea for, you know, probably 30 years. Uh. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> and your loudest sound. Yeah, yes, that's uh, right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to call it the Ben test going forward <laughs> and everyone else uh, will just have to laugh and then I'll, I'll make like a... You know, sort of a, a mashup reel of everyone's laughs. If that's yeah. my legacy, I'll take it. Yeah, that's All right. Great. Yeah. Well, that's that's your baseline. <laughs> so worst case, that's your legacy. Um, so, you know, tell us, uh, for those that don't know, what is the week? Maybe that's a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, your listeners could be forgiven for not knowing what the week is. Uh, no, you know, they we- can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't forgive you. I take it all back. Uh But, you know, look, we're a relatively new brand here in the United States. Um, We launched in the U.S. in 2001. 
Um, we had started in the UK in the 90s uh, before that. But here in the US, you know, we've, we've barely been around for 15 years. And, you know, the whole conceit of the week is this idea that we live in this hyper-partisan, noisy, constantly on the go, uh, echo-chambered filled world um, that a smart, busy, fair-minded person um, needs a fair and authoritative filter to say, hey, here's what matters now and all the rest you can safely ignore. And that's really the, the promise and the premise of the week is saying to a smart, busy person, hey, read this and uh, you'll never feel stupid again. You know, we, we've got your back. And um, it's been tremendously successful here in the U.S. You know, I think the, the conventional wisdom around print news weeklies is they're all in trouble, right? And uh, the week is really the exception that proves the rule. Um, you know, we are, we have this almost evangelical subscriber base where, you know, the magazine plays this very clear and important role in their lives. Um, and our digital operation, which is what, what I've run for the last uh, five years or so, uh, is meant to, to recreate that service uh, digitally, um, to say to a smart, busy person, here is a concise and witty and swift delivery of what matters now, uh, combined with a, uh, an ideologically diverse and an intellectually rigorous uh, exploration of all the these opinions and ideas running beneath the news. And, and that's the role we want to play in a smart, busy person's life. Um, confront them with all kinds of different ideas uh, and all kinds of different information, but as swiftly and fairly as possible. I need to compliment you on, <laughs> uh, on, on your laugh, but also um, on your app because... so. Disclaimer, the Week app is not built with Maz. It's okay. <laughs> Apologize. For now. Uh, <laughs> no, but um, so we work with Mental Floss, which I think is under the same like umbrella company. And right. so yeah. anyway, long story short, they're under the same developer account right. on Apple's App Store. And so I get alerts about reviews for apps under that account. Oh, so you so get that, the weeks also. And so I get the weeks and they're all like five star, amazing <laughs> reviews, amazing ratings. Uh, so I'm always getting like the week reviews, uh, like in a weekly email digest. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way to like separate by app and just for, you know, it's per account. So, um, well, that's a good like dose of positivity for you, right? That's it's, great. Yeah. It's great. Right. I always see the five stars. I'm like, amazing. And I'm like, oh, we didn't make that one. Well, um, you know, what I think is so successful about that app is just how simple and straightforward it, it is. It really is. You know, when we uh, were first building that app, I say we like I did it, but when our, our team was first building yeah. that app, you know, a lot of magazines were doing all this whiz bang flash stuff that was, you know, these really heavy apps. They, you know, were so taken with the promise of what you could do in a tablet app application that they were trying to do everything. And we very much wanted to just recreate the simple and pleasant and straightforward experience of reading our magazine. And so our app, it's not flashy. It's not, you know, there's not a, a lot or really any multimedia elements to it, but readers love it um, because what they want is just to read the magazine on their tablet. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, apparently they really do love it because <laughs> I've never seen the sort of love. Normally people writing on the app store are just like angry trolls. And, right, you know, right. And you have these these love letters. Um, but I think the insight is, is really right and it's something that I've long advocated for, which is that people really just want to read yeah. or they want to look at the pictures or they want to watch the video like, there is with every new device or platform, I'm seeing it now with OTT right, right. and, you know, and skipping ahead a little bit, even with VR, whatever, it's all about like, what are the capabilities of the platform? Um, but, you know, we saw it on the web with Flash. Right, right. You know, Flash was flashy. Um, and <laughs> in the end, the web is just full of text articles and images 
and videos. You could do all other sorts of stuff on the right. web. And then, you know, exactly when, when uh, smartphones and tablets sort of hit the scene, it was like, oh, well, look at all this stuff you could do. Right, right. And it turns out people just want to read the articles. No, I think that's exactly right. And so often digital media companies become so um, enthralled with what is possible that they they ignore um, just what's simply needed and what serves the reader. And, you know, I know you and I have spoken about this in the past, but like, I really believe that like any um, media and news ecosystem that I care to be a part of, like millions and millions of people, they just want to read stuff. Like not everything needs to be something yes. that you watch or listen to or strap on a headset and have a you know immersive virtual reality experience. You know, people still just want to read. Yeah. And you know, to me, you want as few barriers to um, to that experience as possible. You want to make it as simple and and really as invisible as possible. You know, when they say often, you know, as a designer, that good design is often invisible, right? You don't notice it. Um, I think the same is true for user experience. And, you know, so many things are just over-conceived when really, like, what do you need? A headline, some text, a photo, like that, and that's enough. Right, it needs to load fast, it needs to be legible, like these are just, you know, the basics. Basic things, yeah. Uh, Um, And so we really try to do that with everything we do. And I mean, it sounds deceptively simple, right? Like, oh, like (laughs) just produce simple and straightforward stuff that's easy to read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, but it's sort of extraordinary how many websites and applications are over-designed, over-conceived. You see it with all this, the pivots to video as well, but I mean, which is a whole other thing. Oh my God, right. Is that (laughs) that next week's headline? The week (laughs) fires every writer and editor. (laughs) I promise you we will not do that. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) we we will um, be making no pivots. bizarre like <laughs> I, I feel like even just the term pivot is you know it just sounds like some aging hipster who read like a startup oh. blog and now is like you know media companies of course should absolutely adopt new technologies and new formats and video is is definitely you know a, a growing format even though it's not new per se but to completely ditch text right. in favor of video it just seems sort of short-sighted Absolutely. At best. Absolutely. And you and you're right. Like it isn't, you know, to to indict all of these publishers that are pivoting to video isn't to impugn video entirely. Like obviously so many stories are best told through video, you know, especially when it's something like whether it's the hurricanes we're seeing or that shooting in Las Vegas, sometimes the experience of seeing moving images with sound, you know, like that is the most moving and affecting way to impart the news to people. Um, You know, there is a time and a place for video and sometimes it really is the best way to tell a story. But the idea that it is always the best way to tell a story or the idea that every publisher should become a broadcast network on the internet is foolish, I think. And, you know, so many things that um, our competitors are doing in video. And again, I should say, there's tons of great video out there. Mental Floss, our sister publication, which you mentioned, I think they have an awesome video operation. Um, I used to work at Talking Points Memo uh, many, many years ago and ran um, the small video operation there. And I thought we did great video where it was, you know, really served our audience. Like there's great video to be done. But a lot of video that you see uh, among digital news publishers is, you know, some hipster dude or an attractive young woman reading the news in front of a camera because the publisher has this idea that you need to have video because advertising. And right. they don't totally know what that means. It's not the way that an audience would want to consume this news. And and that's what I think is ill-conceived. It's almost just another 
flavor of the flashiness you're totally. talking about yeah, yeah. instead of actually going to the user and saying what do you actually want or need from this experience right it's coming from the other side absolutely like the the content should dictate the package the user need should dictate the package those right. are the two key things right like what information or ideas am i trying to impart to our audience and how do i imagine this person and let's not forget they're people right i think that's so easy to forget in digital media there's you know almost this gamification of digital media where you know and I, I'm prone to this too, where the first thing I did when I became editor of our digital operation was install a giant TV screen that would play Chartbeat at all times. Yep. You know, it's very easy to like think of it as a game and here's your score, but each one of those little dots is an actual person. Chartbeat and, should add like little like uh, like Mario Brothers like coin sounds. <laughs> like whenever something goes on the face, like ding, ding. I do need that. I need that uh, that constant reward feedback. Uh, I think that would go along, right? But yeah, it's so easy just to forget that these are actual people that we're writing about and that we're trying to serve. And yeah, I mean, when deciding whether something should be video, whether it should be text, whether it should be VR, whether it should be a podcast, I mean, I think the key questions are what are you trying to impart to your audience and how do you think the audience would most prefer to consume this information? And that's how you decide how to package something. So how... Is it that you have outsurvived, or at least are outpacing the other Newsweeklies? Like when I was growing up, we got Newsweek, right, right, in my house. Like as a kid, right. that was like something I read because it was sure. just on the coffee table every week. Um, you know, Time they have somehow just faded from sort of the the epicenter of news delivery, yeah. um, and the week is holding strong, and of course. If you're a digital user of the week, you'll note that it's not weekly. Right, right. Um, so that might be part of it. Maybe I'm skipping ahead. Uh, but, but I mean, do you believe that the, the week as just a duration of time is still relevant in news? Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, my upbringing was very similar to yours. And we got time and Newsweek at my house when I was a kid. And I remember it was like an event when those magazines showed up. You wanted to see what was on the cover. You wanted to see, um, you know, just the way that they talked about what had happened that week. And I remember, you know, I probably started looking at it seriously when I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And um, you needed that because we weren't as awash in information as we are today. You didn't know everything that had happened in the world. You weren't um, as just up to the moment about everything. And so the week is a unit of time that could be encapsulated. Um, it was very helpful to think about things that way. I mean, the world was just slower. Um, as for why the week has has um, thrived when some of these other print news weeklies have struggled or in some cases ceased to exist, I think there are a couple reasons. I think one is that the Week magazine is fundamentally different than at least the more recent iterations of those print news weeklies. Um, the Week magazine is a digest, um, and it is meant to curate all these different sources of information, the idea being that a smart, busy person uh, has neither the access nor the time nor really the inclination to read everything. So um, this is a safety net for them. They can trust us um, to, to read everything for them and just give them the best stuff in this tight little package. And, you know, our marketing people like to say that, you know, magazines and reading material piles up, but the week is read. And I really think that's true. Like, you know, if you're anything like me, I have a stack of New Yorkers on my coffee table that are just shaming me, you know? And um, I love the New Yorker. It's my favorite magazine, but um, I don't read it every week. I read it when I have time. I don't need to read it every week because it doesn't play this very specific role in my life. And I think... The week does that in a way that Time and Newsweek 
um, haven't lately. You know, we we will curate and filter uh, and condense um, the news of the week for you. And I would say too that I think we benefited from the fact that we are um, a relatively new entry into the scene. Um, the fact that we just launched 15 years ago. It doesn't sound that new. Yeah, it's not that new, I guess. But compared to, you know, Time Magazine, which is 100 sure, years sure. old, The yeah, Atlantic, fine. which okay. is 150 years old. You're right. Scale, pretty... Yeah, I mean, we're not like, we're not the hot new startup, but we are relatively new. And as a result, like, we're scrappy. Like, we're a small and scrappy company. We have a very clear idea of what our mission is. And we don't have the weight or legacy of 100 years, both of... Um, you know, operational ideas or staff or, you know, bureaus all over the world. Right. You know, we're just we're just a leaner and scrappier operation. Um, and as for your question about the week as a, uh, an element of time for our website, I mean, so the, I think the week is a fantastic brand, but if you were starting a website today and it had no magazine attached to it, you would never name your website the week. I mean, it would just, <laughs> it would, it would seem absurd, right? right? Like, because it's such, um, things happen so much faster we're than rebranding that. as the millisecond. Right, right. Of video only yeah. network of <laughs> well, very short videos. <laughs> totally. <laughs> when, you know, a couple of my predecessors ago when they, you know, this must be 10 years ago when they first were, you know, experimenting with what the week should be online, the URL was actually the week daily. So they were trying to, you know, even then they knew like the week is a is a tough, uh, right? It's like a tough unit of time. Like that makes sense yeah, until yeah. you actually say it, right? And then you're like, oh <laughs> no, that's not gonna, that's not gonna work. Yeah. So what we try to do digitally is honestly is just to take the sort of spirit and brand promise of our weekly magazine and um, deliver on it in a moment to moment or daily sort of way. Because you're right, like if you if we were treating our website as a sort of weekly product, it would just never work. Well, and I feel like the whole timeline has been compressed in that it used to be that you could take a week to sort of, you know, sit back and then sort of get caught up. Right, right. Now, if I talk to someone in the evening and I had a busy day at work and didn't read today's headlines, that's way too slow. I'm I'm an uneducated, out of the loop, you know, person. Right, right. Uh, and so, you know, it's like this constant almost race to be up to the date. Sometimes, you know, I, I have my little office in the corner there and I'll, I'll walk out and be like, you know, like yesterday, did you hear Tom Petty died? Right. And like, I just saw the first tweet about it. Right. And right. everyone's like, oh yeah, we know. Right. And right. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you know um, and the weirdest thing is that I went to CNN.com, New York Times.com, Washington Post.com, and none of them had it yet. Right, right. It was only on social media. Right, and yet right. everyone already knew about it. No, you're right. And it is the sort of Twitterification of the news cycle, right? Like, you know, as much as like the 24-7 cable news operators, you know, were responsible for the sort of, um, you know, the last step in, in the evolution of, you know, our knowing the news so immediately. I mean, I, I do think it's Twitter. And, you know, I use Twitter constantly and every day, um, both as a tool of my job and also as just an addiction as a, as a person. Your um, Twitter is like the ultimate curation because you curate the week. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's its own subbrand. <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but I like that. That's good. Uh, <laughs> um, but you're right. Like it, like the idea that, you know, 
there was a time when you had to wait for the opinion cycle to develop on things, you know, and so you could wait a week because events would happen. And then opinion columnists for daily newspapers and weekly columnists for magazines would weigh in on a daily or weekly cycle. And you would and then, you know, the role of the week was to take all of that in and and synthesize it and try to make sense of it. And that stuff is just happening immediately now. So there's the Twitterification of this like instant everybody knows about it. There's what I think of as like the tyranny of hot take right where like every digital news publisher it's not enough to just report the news you have to have a take on it an opinion on it and you know oftentimes um, a, a fast piece um, you know if it's written by somebody who's really smart and thoughtful can be very good but most hot takes are terrible like you know there's no clear thesis there's no strong argument it's just you know 800 fast slapdash flabby wandering words um, about something rather than having a clear thesis. Um, but that is, we're all so hungry for it. And we see it as publishers, like that we we feel the need to have that stuff because the audience demands it and you almost can't have it fast enough. But, um, you know, there's an old construction maxim, right? Um, you can, like, I believe it's it's cheap, quick, and good. Pick two. And right. the same is true of the news, right? Like you can have something that's fast and good, but it'll be really expensive because you have to pay the foremost expert, the best person to do it. You can have something cheap and fast, but it's not going to be good. Um, you know, right. you, you can't have it all. And, and it's hard for publishers. Right. You can't be thoughtful and, and calm and, you know, have proper perspective if you're, and if you're writing publishing it, within, it in 12 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> right. Right. And so, I mean, it, it's funny because so you, you talk about you know, it's a relatively new brand. I guess you're right, relative to 100 years, right, 15 right, years yeah. new. But it's almost like what you're talking about, just in a generic sense, uh, a way to, you know, curate a barrage of news and, uh, you know, help sort of combat the echo chamber right. uh, that is social media. It's almost like this brand could have been launched in November 2016. Absolutely. Um, do you almost feel like finally the world has caught up and that, you know, now it's sort of out in the open that we all have this problem to start with? That's a great point and a great question. And I mean, I will say that, yeah, I do feel that way. And I do feel like as time goes on and our country becomes ever more polarized and people become ever more calcified in their own beliefs and, um, you know, we, we're addicted to wanting information, but we all get it from these kind of like echo chamber bubbles where, you know, progressive readers go to progressive websites that tell them why every progressive idea in their head is right and true. And obviously the same thing on the right. And we all want it immediately. I mean, I do feel like as time goes by, um, the week is almost more suited to the current moment than it ever has been. And, you know, I found myself saying to our staff in the days after Donald Trump you know, won the presidency last year, um, now more than ever, what we do matters. And I really do think that. And, you know, again, like part of it is trying to, you know, swiftly the, deliver the news in this like fair and authoritative way. But the other part of it is um, really confronting people with ideas that are different than their own. You know, we take a lot of pride in wanting to be a place where you don't come to have your beliefs confirmed, but you come to have your thoughts provoked. And, um, you know, I hear from readers all the time about how they're pissed off about a certain opinion piece on our site or they really don't like this. But I think what readers keep coming to the week for is to be challenged that way and to think about things differently. And so, yeah, I mean, I do think that our brand 
Um, like if you were coming up with an idea for a news and opinion website that could appeal to smart people on uh, of all ideological perspectives, like you you probably couldn't do much better than coming up with the idea of the week, even though you know it's it's right. many Just, years old. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's almost like we've all been awoken to this <laughs> right. phenomenon right. that obviously has been there right. all along. I mean, that's what caused, you know, a, a lot of the issues that now are coming to a head. And so when I think about it, you know, even on Twitter, for instance, um, you, you sort of have left Twitter and right Twitter and, right, you know, right. and then far right Twitter and far left Twitter and everyone in between, but uh, actually not that much between. Um, <laughs> it's the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> but what I find is that people are eager to jump on their comrades. Right. If they question the, the sort of, you know, uh, the core values, whatever those may be. Um, and so it's not only about sort of seeking what is the quote unquote other side's opinion, but even seeking what is another opinion on my own side. Right. That sort of, you know, is self-examining. And even that seems to be out of bounds for a lot of people. No, absolutely. I, th- I mean, I think that's a smart insight, and I think that's right. I mean, you know, the, you know, the left is having an identity crisis and has been for the last year, but you see, you know, liberals and leftists and neoliberals and progressives, and they're all different things, right? Like all going at each other about what it means to be on the left, you know, or even you know what the Democratic Party ought to do. And the same thing is obviously true on the right. And I think if they hadn't won full control of the federal government last year, like they would just be tearing themselves to pieces in a very similar way. But yeah, it is, it's not nearly as simple as left versus right. And in fact, so many of the old ideological lines are scrambled, right? Like, is Trump a populist or a plutocrat? You know, is his Republican Party um, one that just wants to, you know, help the rich keep as much of their money as possible, or is really standing up for these white working class voters who, you know, whatever you may think of their grievances, there's a certain legitimateness in, you know, a lot of the things they're feeling, uh, particularly with regard to the economy and labor. And, you know, what is the Republican Party? What is a Trumpist? And the same thing is true on the left, right? You know, the sort of neoliberal order that has dominated democratic politics for the last at least couple decades, um, you know, they're, they seem like they're going to be supplanted, but by what? And yeah, I mean, we see like, if we have a leftist writer write a piece, we see him being criticized by neoliberals as much as we do conservatives. And we find weird ideological alliances where actually one of our conservative writers and one of our progressive writers will actually kind of agree about, say, immigration or will kind of agree about, say, healthcare. Um, you know, like we have a leftist writer and a conservative writer who are both advocates of single payer healthcare, and they come at it from very different ideological perspectives, but they end up in the same place. And, uh, you know, it, everything is scrambled today and everything is different. And that said, as, you, as you're right to point out, like the, the battles are fiercer than ever and the opponents on either side are not what you would traditionally think. Yeah. I, uh, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but recently that, you know, you can sort of find libertarian views if you just keep going left not right. only if you right. keep going right like right. it just kind of comes back around because the socially when, li- liberal views are libertarian yeah yeah and in that and and also that that the role that identity and identity politics where 
even if if you and another person on the left have similar grievances, but you're of you know one religion or race or whatever you know fill in your identity here. Then the other person you say, well, no, no, no. Actually, you don't understand my problem because right. my problem is specific to me, and I just want to solve it for me. Right, right. And what you end up with is basically someone who really just wants. They're not looking out for the social good or the community any more than someone on the far, far right. Right, right. Um, and just how withdrawn everyone is, not only from left to right, but from one another. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the way that we live online is hugely responsible for that, right? Like we all live in these neighborhoods online that one, we've curated for ourselves, right? So we've picked what we're going to see. And also, you know, pretty much all of these tech giants that are serving us content, um, they, they're incentivized to show you things that are like the other things that you've interacted with, right? And it makes sense for their business. You know, I get, for instance, why Amazon wants to, if I go buy a children's book for my kid, they're going to show me 50 more books like that because I'll probably buy them. You know, I've shown a proclivity to buy something like that. Um, it all makes sense. And the same thing is true for Facebook with content. The same thing is true for Google. I mean, I think that within the silo of their own businesses, it completely makes sense. But I do think it's it's deleterious for the, the civic good and our public health um, for people to not be confronted by other ideas and other sorts of people. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but you know, there are a lot of people in my life here in New York City who said they didn't know a single Trump voter, um, and I think they mean that both in real life and also the people they associate with online. It's like this foreign species to them. You know, they can't even comprehend it, and, and then it's repulsive. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, yeah. if someone was outed as such right right it would be like i you know no like, absolutely like not only do they not know any but they can't imagine associating with somebody like that and the same is true on the right you know a lot of conservatives oh, would 100%. be like oh my god like can you imagine if you know like a same-sex supporting a same-sex marriage supporting liberal you know it's it's um you know it's hearsay it, yes. um but you know that sense of community and that sense of a community with lots of I mean, it's funny. I think that um, so many of us today hold up diversity as, as this this ideal, and it is, but diversity of thought and of ideology is far less heralded um, than the kinds of uh, what I think of as the traditional sorts of diversity that we all strive for. And, you know, I will say, like, you know, I have a few Trump voters in my life who I talked with at length um, last year leading up to the election, and I found it extraordinarily helpful um, for my job. You know, um, even though most people I know here in New York City, um, you know, even the ones who are Repu Republicans, frankly, didn't like Trump. You yeah. know, like that's the, that's the kind of well, Republican the line you get might in New not York even City. be exactly right, Democrat right. Republican. I remember leading up to the election, I took um, a VIA. Right, you right. Know, for those that don't know, I don't know if it's in every city, but it's like an Uber type competitor. And, right. And, uh, but I was the only one in the car. Right, right. Which is the best sort of VIA. <laughs> um, and, uh, and my driver, whatever, I got into a conversation, I was going to the Javits Center, so it took like eight hours. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he was an Egyptian-American. He'd been an American citizen for like 25 years. Right. He's voting for Trump. And this was very soon after Trump was talking about a Muslim ban right, right. by name. Right, and right. It was pre-President pre Trump. This right. was candidate Trump being like, I fully want there to be a ban of Muslims, like right, straight up. Right. And I was telling him, and he's like, ah, he doesn't mean it. And I was like, why? What part of his words would lead you to believe he doesn't mean it? Right, right. You, you're Muslim. Your family is Muslim, you know. Um, 
and he, and it was this fascinating conversation. I mean, conversation probably like twenty minutes or something of just, you know, I don't know. Somehow early on, it was revealed he was a Trump voter. I was a Hillary voter. This is like in the week or two leading up to the election. Right, right. And we had this really amazing dialogue, and he talked about being tough on on terrorism. He talked about um, you know sort of cleaning up the the whatever draining the swamp sort of rhetoric a lot of these sort of things and and then he had a lot of issues with hillary all the sort of sound bites you'd expect but for some reason when you hear it from another human being's mouth totally seems somehow less uh i I don't know just it's it has a different effect than when you just read the headline oh absolutely and uh and that's when i sort of really took seriously that that he might win the election because i was like look if this muslim american driver in new york city who lives in queens is voting for trump and all his friends that he knows are voting for trump right then there's something fundamentally wrong with how i imagine the country it to be no absolutely and you know i think that so many people on both sides want to envision a sort of caricature of their political opponents and grapple with that and you're right when it's an actual human being who's telling you how they feel i mean so for me like the Trump voter in my life who was most affecting to me is, I won't say who, but like a woman who's like my family, my wife and I are very close to, and she works two jobs and she really struggles to get by. And, you know, she's looking at this guy who's saying like, you know, the elites in this country have been screwing over normal working people like you for years, and I'm going to change that. And the other candidate is saying, America's already great. What do we need to change? I mean, who are you going to support? Like it, it made total sense to me, even though I didn't think, Trump's policies would necessarily help this person or that he would necessarily deliver on his promises or that he was temperamentally fit to be president of the United States. But like, I get why that message and that messenger would appeal to somebody like that. And it it really does take that human connection, which frankly, like so few of us have these days because we all live in our little digital bubbles um, and geographic bubbles as well. Well, it's a question I've asked before, but it seems like if anything, the internet should be able to help close those gaps you can meet people that don't live right in your city and that you don't interact with on your normal you know course of the day but for some reason that's not how we use the internet right no it's a great point man i mean you're right like because we have you know like so when like the week, like one of the ideas of the week was people didn't have access to all these newspapers. So we would read them all and bring them together. And that's quaint now, right? Because everyone has access to every newspaper. But the same thing is true about access to every kind of person, right? Like if you wanted to meet someone from any part of the world, from any walk of life who had had any experience, like you could seek that out and find it pretty easily online. Um, I, I won't psychoanalyze why we, we don't do that, but the truth is we don't do it. We seek out things that reinforce our beliefs. And when we seek out things we disagree with, it's often to pseudonymously be hateful about it um, and be critical about it, at least. Um, it's very rare, or I shouldn't say very rare, but it's less common for people to seek things out that will challenge what they believe and open their minds. I mean, yeah. Part of it is I think some just biological factors that, you know, right. our endorphins are released when we see things that we already agree with. Right, and, right. That makes sense. You know, yeah. that whatever, lead, you know, evolutionary biologists will tell you it's because you want to know pretty quickly, like, who's with you and who's against you. Right. Should I give this person a hug or should I smash their face with a rock? Like, <laughs> I need to know now. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. I can't sit back a week and wait <laughs> for the digest. Uh, like, right. And so part of it is that. Um, but, but then 
part of it also is is maybe the busy part of your smart and busy right. you know sort of profile right. uh, of in that it does take a lot of effort to seek out those different right. viewpoints even if they're accessible to you right and it's much easier to sort of just go with the the flow right you know and so almost the way the week is is creating this digest it's like I wonder if there's space in our lives for that to happen in other ways. Could there be the week for, you know, viewpoints from people that live in different countries? Right, right. The week for, you know, people that are of a different race or sexual orientation than you. Like a way to quickly, for people that actually do want the diverse viewpoints, but just don't have the time or energy or even like, you know, the thought to go seek them out individually. Right. It's like, here's sort of a roundup. Right. You know, I don't know. No, I, it's a good point. And I think there's clearly a need for that. Like, pe- like people need that. Like our country needs that. Like our sort of like body politic needs that. I think what's tricky is that digital media companies are incentivized to do the exact opposite of that because there is a larger audience if you um, target a specific group, right? If you say like, we're writing for conservatives, we're writing for progressives, we're writing for people who care passionately about this one thing. And double down. Exactly. And feed people the thing that you know they like and want. And, you know, I, and I I say candidly, like, you know, we have, what we feel like is a healthy and robust audience, but we're not big compared to other digital media sites. And, you know, part of it is, you know, we're kind of a scrappy, company, we never, we're not going to be CNN or BuzzFeed. But part of it is I do think there's a ceiling on the sort of audience that will seek out what the week does. Um, I think not everybody wants it. But is there room for more stuff like that? For sure. Um, And, you know, you do see some media brands doing stuff like this, like The Guardian introduced this feature a while back called like Burst Your Bubble, where like, you know, three times a week, they're going to show their progressive audience like three conservative ideas. Now, to me, the whole way that it, sorry, Guardian folks, if you're listening, but the whole way it's presented and packaged has like a little bit of a layer of snark to it. Like, Oh, we found three smart conservative things. You know, I mean, right. it's um, it's it's almost uh, like unfair in its conceit. Uh, but um, but there is a place for that, and I do think that a lot of responsible publishers see the need for that. Like the New York Times does a roundup, I think a couple times a week now, where they ra- round up some of the best opinion writing from the left, right, and center, and, and they get slammed. They do, right? <laughs> they do, yeah, <laughs> right. They bring on a new conservative columnist, and everyone howls. I've been subscribing yeah. for forty years, and I'm not subscribing. Right. Yeah. And it it is hard. You know, like I think that ideally we do want this ideological diversity. We do want to um, have our thoughts provoked. It sounds good, right? People want to view themselves as open-minded people, but boy, oh boy, like we often react poorly um, when our beliefs are questioned or our sensibilities are offended. Um, and it's tricky. I think it's tricky for digital news companies because we're, we're businesses, right? And so you have to serve a consumer need and make money for it. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to balance that with um, serving the public good. So when you say that there's, you know, sort of a ceiling there, yeah. Is the idea that you're just looking to round up all of those people? And as these people exist in the world, and we just need to find them all and and bring them over. Or is the idea to create more people like that? Because those seem like two really different goals. Yeah, I mean both. I, both, I think. But the one that I think happens far more often is finding our kind of people. Right. Um, you know, the way we see that in our magazine is one of, you know, one of the, the biggest and best ways that we get new subscribers to our magazine is through gift subscriptions, through an existing subscriber saying to someone cool. in their life, 
I know you, you will really like this. And we see it ourselves in, on our, uh, in our digital operation and that our biggest single form of traffic is direct traffic, emailing, slacking, texting, g-chatting with each other. You know, it's a personal recommendation. It's somebody who is an open-minded, intellectually curious, um, weak reader saying to someone else in their life, hey, I think you would like this. Um, and we do think there's millions and millions of people like that. We certainly don't think we've capped our audience. You sure. know, there's tons of people who would like the week who don't know about it. Now, is it also possible to convert people? I think and hope so. And I, and we do want to do that. Um, but it's harder. It is harder. Um, and we do very subtly, but but in a real way, try to show people that there is a diversity of opinion on our website. So for instance, like every political opinion piece on our website, we have a little module like embedded right in the copy that says more perspectives and we'll show you um, you know, two opinion pieces from different ideological perspectives. So that basically like, let's say like, you know, somebody shares a liberal piece of ours on Facebook and, you know, a liberal reader clicks on it. We want to show them this is a place where there are also conservative ideas, even though you clicked this liberal right, seeming headline right. and are reading this liberal opinion piece. We want to show people this is who we are. And if you want this, um, you know, you should come hang out with us more. Um, well, and I find also just as a reader that 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 counterbalance sort of helps because you're reading the piece and you're like, yeah, yeah. Like this is totally like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm into this. And then, right. It's good in that moment. If for no other reason than to play devil's advocate, you know, so like I studied philosophy undergrad and, and any good philosophical uh, piece of writing will anticipate the objections in advance. But I find that so much, modern writing does not do that. It's kind of hoping that the reader just won't realize any of the objections. And it's so much better and actually makes your case so much stronger if you can present the objections and and still overcome them. Uh, and, and for some reason, that just seems to be missing. I mean, I could not agree with that more. And I can't tell you how many opinion pieces over the years I've sent back to the writer with just one note, which is, I need you to anticipate this very reasonable counterargument from the other side and swat it down. You don't have to spend half yes, the piece arguing so it, but you have to, you know, the thing that to so acknowledge it, it exactly. So if this is a conservative piece, like I want you to imagine a reasonable liberal reading this, and what is the thing they're going to be shouting silently in their head while they're reading this? And I want you to acknowledge it and swat it down. Um, you know, I, you have to do that. I mean, it's funny, like good opinion writing. They teach you how to do that in high school, right? It's have a thesis, show evidence, raise the counter arguments, yes. like show the evidence against them and, you know, conclude in, a, in, you know, obviously you need great writing too, but like the spine and the skeleton of it is very straightforward and very simple. And, you know, the things we think our opinion writing is some of the best on the internet, you know, it's, it's smart, it's rigorous, uh, it's, it's ideologically diverse as we've talked about. But, you know, one of the reasons is we go back to writers all the time and say, not all the time at this point, because our writers know better, but like say, don't argue by assertion, show your evidence, raise the counter arguments, like let's build a convincing case. Not that we're necessarily trying to change a million minds with every piece, but the piece has to be strong enough that it, it can do that, that it can change someone's mind. Well, it's funny, almost the label opinion piece right. seems to undermine right. the idea <laughs> that you would need evidence. Right, right. You know, yeah. Maybe you call it something else. Yeah, like, no, totally. You're deductive right. Deductive reasoning yeah. piece. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, like they're arguments, right? Like that's, that's what they that's are. Better, like right. um, they're arguments. Like, and, you know, when writers pitch us something, it's like we need a clear headline or thesis that basically says this is what the argument is and then we want them to 
marshal their evidence. And, uh, you know, the strongest pieces only become stronger when you add evidence or when you raise the counter arguments, as you said. Um, but, you know, a close reading of, of a lot of opinion writing on the internet is kind of just a semi-talented writer riffing on an idea rather than truly building a compelling case. And obviously there's, there is great arguments uh, and argumentation writing on the internet, but a lot of what's thought of as opinion writing is kind of just riffing or just asserting. Um, and, you know, some of my favorite writing um, is, is so just viciously good, but it's kind of um, just ad hominem attacks, you know, and it's the best ad hominem attacks ever, but that's not going to change anyone's mind. It's just preaching to the choir. I mean, it, it mirrors politicians from what I can tell. Like totally. it's the same, obviously that appetite in the public Right. For, you know, sort of the baseless but compelling, you know, arguments, if you want to call them that, right. are really, I guess in this case, really are just opinions. Right, right. Um, that's what seems to resonate. And right. that, you know, one of the common criticisms of Barack Obama or, or, or Hillary was sort of like when they would try to break down those shades of gray and actually bring those pesky facts into right. the mix, it's like, oh, this is boring. Right, right. You know, as opposed to sort of bombastic statement whatever it is you know um it was really interesting the insight you had a little while back about you know as if one politician is saying things are great like they like they are now and we just want to keep doing more of this and someone else says things suck then you just sort of are hedging are there more people that think things are great or there more people that think things suck right and it almost seems like there should be a way to acknowledge both you know to say you know what? It's awesome that, you know, we gay people can get married and we have, you know, healthcare, even though it could be improved and there are some right. amazing things, but you know what sucks? Like so many people can't get jobs and all these right. industries, like to acknowledge all of the above and to have some honesty about it. Right. Um, but is that just too nuanced for politics in the 21st century? Like it, I, am I just misremembering or was I too young to sort of, to, to know, like, in decades past, um, it, it, is this a new problem at all? Uh, yes and no. And I mean, you are right that, like, there is so much more nuance to our American reality than you would know from the sort of headline proclamations of our politicians, right? Um, I mean, Trump, you know, basically the whole premise of his campaign was everything sucks, but I'm going to make it great again, right? And Hillary was basically like, what are you talking about? America's awesome. Um, you know, and that's, that's oversimplifying on sure. both counts, but like it was the basic thrust of both campaigns and neither one is correct, obviously. I mean, as you say, in some ways, America is great and America is better than it's ever been. And there are a million reasons to be happy about things that are going on in this country. But hey, like if you're somebody who, you know, you live in a town in Indiana where the factory that employed 80% of the population shut down and everybody's been struggling and scrapping by, or if you are, you know, uh, let's say, uh, you know, a member of a, a minority who's been discriminated against your whole life or, you know, is institutionally discriminated against because you lack the opportunities that a white person or a person of privilege in this country does. Like, of, of course you might bristle at the idea that, like, everything is hunky-dory, right? And, yeah, I mean, I do think that uh, 
in times past when things were slower, when um, voices were amplified to a less ostentatiously loud degree, that there was more space for nuance, that there was more space for policy, that it was less about posturing. And, you know, so much political coverage is just idiotic. It's just, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I, I won't by name call out any certain overpriced CNN correspondent, but... <laughs> Um, but so much is just focused on the horse race and is focused on the drama. And look, like one of the reasons that I first fell in love with um, covering politics and being interested in politics is because of the horse race and because of the drama. You know, like that stuff is fundamentally interesting. But the idea that it's all there is or the idea that it's the most important thing or that it's the, the idea that that's what the media should um, pay attention to at the expense of everything else um, is, is really bad for the country. And, um, you know, I, I think the media kind of got a wake up call about it after the 2016 election. And I think you've seen um, a real recommitment to sort of, you know, um, enterprise journalism and kind of what matters about journalism from some of the greatest papers and publications in the country, like, you know, for better or worse, like, well, better, uh, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post have really found the sort of renaissance of great journalism uh, during the Trump administration. And I do think that in in many pockets of the media, there is a recommitment to um, to finding that nuance, to, to talking about the things that matter rather than being distracted by the things that don't. But it's tricky, man, um, because you know what gets clicks is uh, is the loudest voice and the you know the most uh, uh, extreme idea. It's ironic. Uh, you were saying that you know Hillary was saying the country's great now, and Trump was saying it sucks. We can make it great again. It's ironic that you know Democrats. Like Republicans are thought of as being more patriotic, you know, waving the American flag. Yeah, yeah. And yet they're the ones saying America sucks. Right. And you know what I mean? It's it's this whole Oh, totally. And there are there are internal hypocrisies on both sides. Yeah, but I you're guess right. So. Like, I mean, Republicans have effectively co-opted the idea that patriotism is a conservative or Republican thing, right? You know, like they've kind of owned that for a long time, you know, much in the same way that they we're seen as the daddy party and Democrats were the mommy party, you know, like whatever the truth or, or falsehood to any such claim is like just from a political perspective, they have effectively won that battle where like it is viewed as theirs, like the flag is viewed as theirs. That's why Trump's whole, you know, he's feeding into an existing dynamic with this whole national anthem NFL thing. Right. Um, but you're right. Like there is something like fundamentally at odds there where, you know, the quote unquote patriotic party is the one being like things in our country suck right now. Um, you know, of course, they're promising to return to some, you know, uh, undefined, nostalgic time when things were great. And obviously, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, problematic implications about what that suggests. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so much about Trump and his campaign and his entire movement um, is full of, of contradictions, right? Um, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you've identified one for sure. Yeah. The, uh, the clickbait problem, I don't, I'm, you didn't use the word clickbait, but, but sort of, I, you said it more gracefully. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> you, said, you said something else about clicks. Uh, it, it's a real problem. And I agree with you that there has, at least seemingly been sort of a renaissance, if not a whitewashing of, of how things were a year ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it does seem like there's just an intrinsic problem. Um, and this is something that 
I've talked about on previous episodes, so I apologize to, to that I'm asking you the same question that I've asked a couple of other people. But like, is there this intrinsic problem with media being a for-profit business, specifically news, I should say, yeah, different than media in general? And I have no problem with you know recipe sure. magazines charging. Like, in other words, if you have the you know, um, the intention of growing and scaling and not ever hitting a ceiling until right. you've hit the entire human population, then it seems that you are really just in a, in a, you know, sort of full embrace of capitalism. You should be able to just really optimize for what gets you the most revenue. Yeah. And like the business person to me says like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And as it turns out, humans are fairly easy to figure out and you can, totally optimize and and drill down hard there and make a lot of money and it's yeah. awesome but then you know the week and, and a few others seem to be specifically mission driven yeah um but then you're you're almost self-imposing a cap on your eventual growth by by sticking to the mission um i don't know like where, where's news supposed to be yeah i mean it's a good question and so i I agree that you can maximize short-term profits by being super cynical about what you publish, you know, because you can choose certain topics to cover, you can choose certain headline constructions that promise something that propel you forward into clicking that will generate virality and a massive amount of clicks and you get a ton of traffic on, you know, the first 100 times you do that, but then people learn. So I think you can maximize short-term. Do they though? Yeah, I do. Or or the platforms learn. You know, it's why Upworthy and Viral Nova aren't the you know successes today that they were two or three years ago. But, but I don't even mean sorry. Like yeah, yeah, it is not clickbait in the traditional in the literal sense. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, which, yeah, which is its own issue yeah, yeah, sure. and is also effective. And I think you're right. Has sort of a a, a shorter you know whatever. burns hot. And yeah, dies it's like out a, fast. it's radioactive decay is yeah, faster. Yeah. But but I mean more like so. There's this headline that just has stuck with me for the past past few months it was you know the week after charlottesville right and there was a cnn headline that ran that was like trump denounces nazis comma finally (laughs) (laughs) and and you know the liberal in me was kind of like yeah like uh, yeah yeah. but then i was just appalled right it was like you just don't just get rid of the comma finally and that's right. a fine headline. Yeah. That's a great headline. It's descriptive, it tells the facts. This is a, a you know a, a big news brand where people rely on it to get the headlines and the comma finally just continues to haunt me. Yeah. Um, so that's not clickbait in like the... No, I know what you mean, you know, but it is uh, it is leaning into a headline more than news organizations traditionally would. And so I guess what I would say is I don't think there's fundamentally a problem with news organizations being for-profit enterprises, but I think that the business model that news organizations, particularly digitally, are embracing today, the way that they're making profits or seeking profits in many cases, because a lot of them aren't making profits, um, that is problematic. And so what I mean by that is like, like, 
you know, it wasn't so long ago that magazines and newspapers, and our magazine is still like this, were largely bolstered by subscriptions, by people paying for subscriptions to the newspaper or magazine. Now, obviously, they sold advertisements as well, but the big revenue stream was subscriptions. And obviously, like the things you cover and the way you frame things and the whole publication's attitude do affect subscription numbers, but not nearly in the same proximal or immediate or micro way as the way you write a headline affects the traffic on that story right like it's a much uh, longer tail and wider thing and you're right that today like you know we'll publish 40 or 50 things on our website today and the amount of traffic that we get on those things is directly tied to the headlines that we put on them and how far forward we lean with those headlines like there are versions of the headlines where we know we could get more traffic if we leaned harder into it but we don't do it because we think like that's not us and that's not serving our audience and that's off-brand for us and Yeah, I mean, I do think that at a certain point, every news organization has to decide where the line for them between mission and profit is. And, you know, like, we're very much like a business focused company, we're like, you know, we're profitable company. And like, but we very much like are are concerned with those things, you know, like, we're not just doing this out of the goodness of our hearts, like we want to make money. And rightfully so. Yeah, totally. Yeah, we want to turn a profit. And we're successful in doing that. But We also don't want to make a bigger profit at the cost of our brand and soul. And, you know, something like that comma finally, like that in and of itself doesn't ruin CNN's brand, but a thousand articles like that is like a little bit of a death by a thousand cuts for any brand. And, you know, I think it it really comes down to having people at a given digital news company who believe in what they do and protect protect what they're doing and protect the brand and the readers. And that can't really come at the expense of profits, but neither should profits come at the expense of the mission. And it's hard. It's hard to know exactly where that is. And you see people screw it up both ways. I mean, we've hardly been perfect about it. You know, um, sometimes we do lean a little too far in too, because we're like, oh, this might do well if we just turn it up one notch, you know. Um, but it's tricky. It's a hard thing for, for, for news organizations to figure out. I feel like I just had sort of a, a breakthrough. This has been something that's been really just top of mind for me for for months now. And and the just to sort of regurgitate what you, what you said, um, the fact that you look at the subscription model as being more resilient, yeah, yeah, is really really powerful. And 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 I I I'd never thought about it that way. But in other words. Um, if right, if I went to CNN.com today and every headline was, you know, something that I completely disagreed with or was suddenly, you know, like crazy right wing and whatever, and then right. I was like, this is weird. And then tomorrow the same thing happened. Like pretty quickly, I would just stop going there. Right, right. Um, whereas if I was subscribing, paying money on an annual basis or maybe even a monthly basis, and every once in a while you're sort of sneaking in things that challenge me or whatever. Um, I'm not going to go cancel my subscription as a result. Right. And right. so again, maybe if every single article for the whole year, then I would be like, well, I'm not going to renew. Right. Right. E- and, and even not renewing, you know, especially with a digital auto renewing subscription takes, it's actually the onus is now on me to go unsubscribe. Right. You know? Right. Right. Um, and so you can sort of challenge me in all different ways. You, know, right. you can, you can be less clickbaity, you can sort of throw things into to my mix that might be a little more uncomfortable 
And my resiliency to that is going to be higher because I'm sort of more invested in the brand. I think that's exactly right. And look, like I think the brands that are doing the best work and have the most internal consistency about what they do and are the most resilient to moment to moment market pressures are brands that have subscription models at their heart. So, you know, they're the great magazines, they're the great newspapers. And, you know, when an, when a reader trusts in you to say, I'm going to give you my hard-earned money because I want this product. I care. I like your judgment. I like the way that you present things. I think that you're, you know, fair or whatever the sales pitch is to them. And it gives the media organization um, a little bit of freedom to do what they do without wondering how many shares every piece is going to get on Facebook. Um, When you are a a website that essentially just has one source of revenue, digital ad revenue, which is directly tied to traffic, as you say, that's what incentivizes bad behavior or or at least... um, uh, less than ideal behavior. And and that is a problem. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is other than feeling like the subscription model, which really is our model of the week, even though on our website, that's not our model. Like uh, the core of our business is a subscription model to our magazine. And, and we do think that that... Um, that allows us to be true to our readers and, and true to ourselves um, in a way that is so profitable, but not so susceptible to every up and down and whim of the internet. Do you think it could seep into a subscription model? In other words, where, again, you're sort of doubling down on the slant right. to keep people in the fold and they're more likely to buy that gift subscription right. because they have like-minded friends who will really just dig into this, you know? Yeah. So we, I mean, we like one of the, um, without getting into the numbers, like we sell a lot of subscriptions to our magazine on our website. Like it's like a sort of key function of the website as far as the bottom line of the business is using our digital platform as a vehicle to raise awareness to and sell subscriptions for our magazine. Now I think Charging subscriptions for a website is is really tricky, and I think that readers have been trained for far too long to expect everything for free. And so, you know, um, I do think like someone like the New York Times that is offering you know a thousand reporters around the world and exclusive reporting and information, readers will pay for that. I think it's trickier. Um, for places that are contextualizing or arguing about the news. And, you know, the one I always think about is Andrew Sullivan, right, who was sort of like basically the best blogger, the best curator, like one of the smartest writers ever on the Internet. And when, you know, when he was at The Atlantic and The Daily Beast, like he had an enormous audience there, an enormous influence. And when he went off on his own and charged a relatively modest price uh, for the dish, I think it was like 20 bucks a year or something like that. I mean, I think I remember seeing in his first year, he got like 30,000 paying subscribers. And it's tricky. It's tricky to convince readers to pay. But do you think that is a brand problem with Andrew Sullivan, who I agree is awesome? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Or is it what you were implying, which is that it's more of a charging for website. Like, I think it's interesting that you even separate magazine from the website as opposed to saying we have free digital content and then we have a paid subscription, which is print and digital. Right, right. You know, which is factually true, but but the way you state it is our web content is free and then you can pay for the magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wonder, and it's not for the week, but just in in general, how long that distinction will hold up for instance, the New York Times seems to have fully made the transition 
where, of course, there are different bundles, print, not print, whatever, but it's not, there's the newspaper and there's the website. Right, right, right. It's just the New York Times. Right, right. Um, and, and, you know, web, app, print are all sort of different channels or, or outputs of the New York Times, which is one singular sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it sort of depends on the brand. So, like, I think it's trickier when you're talking about, like, a weekly or a monthly magazine. So, for instance, like, you know, for us, like, the material that's going to go in our weekly digest is just fundamentally different than what's going to go on our moment-to-moment or daily website. Like, the same is true of, like, The New Yorker, for instance, right? Like, they can put their awesome magazine stories up on their website, but they also have to have daily web content that is sort of dealing with what's happening then. Or Vanity Fair is another good example, right? Would you ever consider sort of trickling out that weekly content not all is not in a in a package once a week, but just it's the same articles and right. it's the same subscription price, but it's it's sort of just as it's ready, it's coming out. And of course, a magazine editor will tell you what you know you're losing sort of the arc of the issue. And, right, right. You know, so we probably would never release things early like that just because of our production schedule and the way that those things get put together. Um, we do pull a few things out of the magazine and put them in front of the subscriber paywall on the website. But mostly, you know, like that content in the magazine, like it's really valuable and people pay for it. And so we, we don't want to give it away for totally. free. Totally. Yeah. yeah and, I, and again, I'm not even talking about the week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wonder about the time when the magazine issue goes away. Everything else can stay intact, right? I mean, for instance, you want like, a, all, like an a la carte kind of thing instead of the... Well, no, not even a la carte. It's more like an all-access subscription a la Netflix. Oh, I see. Right? So, was, I mean, monthly subscriptions are are more popular than ever. Right, this right. This is something, of course, magazines have been doing forever. Right. Um, and so, okay, let's take Netflix. So there's a new season in all 10 episodes of Orange is the New Black drop all at once the right. same way that you know, the whatever, 20, 30 articles of this issue drop all right, at right. once. Like that doesn't change. It's just that you're not paying for issues. You're paying to just join the service. Yeah. And then you have these packages of content, you know, formerly known as issues and maybe some other exclusive content, maybe, you know, a, a, whatever, a redressing of some of, some of the web content that's, easier to read or ad free or I don't know. It, it becomes yeah. more like a membership model, you know? I mean, it's a great question. And frankly, like, I think that's really innovative idea about the way that legacy publications are still not just packaging their stuff, but conceiving about their very identity and product. I mean, I would say that I think generationally there are certain kinds of readers, you know, middle-aged and onwards, and even somebody, you know, I'm 36 and I think I'm like this, who they want this, like the, the thing in a nice package, that kind of single serving, like with a clearly defined beginning and end. So like one thing, like, so, you know, like I was, when I was writing the spin bike in my basement this morning, I read like a couple magazines and like, there's something about the finishability of reading a magazine that I like. And I didn't read everything in it, but I like browsing through it from front cover to back and, you know, sampling a couple things and then not reading them and reading a couple articles. But I like the I like the experience of finishing it, of completing it. And for me, and this might just be my personality, but I do think there's lots of people like this, especially people of a certain age, the idea of just having everything available and you pick and you dip into that or this rather than the editors being like, here's the thing. 
I, I don't know. I mean, right. it's interesting. And you yeah. never finish it. Right. And there's right. no sense of accomplishment. Totally. And, like, because there's always some other stuff that you just can read. live in a constant state of anxiety. <laughs> <and> <laughs> it would, I would totally be anxious about that. <laughs> um, no, it's, it's, yeah. it really is interesting because I, I feel like, and I agree with you and, and, you know, not to be morbid, but as those older generations sort of move out of the market. Uh, <laughs> Where we're not all going to live forever. You know, uh, we've got some time. Um, no, but I mean, it, it's, I wonder if it's a remnant of the age of print right. and less uh, having intrinsic value in itself. It's more just that we can't get over the paradigm, you know, and, right. and I, I don't pretend to know the answer to that question. I think you're exactly right. Look, like if you were start, if if newspapers didn't exist, if that was never something that existed, nobody would conceive of packaging news that way today, right? Like printing it out on these like folios of paper and having like this dude drive around a neighborhood and throw it on your phone. I mean, nobody would ever conceive of that. And the right. same is true probably of magazines as well. Like totally end of you know, of albums, I mean, for books, music, and, anything. Yeah. You know. And so you're right, like that it is the existing paradigms and packages that prevail. Um, but I still think it's it's a hard habit to break. Um, but it's a, it's an interesting idea for sure. So the last thing I wanted to ask yeah. you about, um, because the week mm. is you know originated in the UK. Yeah, yeah. And I know before we started recording, you were telling me how you used to live in India. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, we really we could spend some time talking about the inner workings of New Delhi. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I only get it you know in, in little bites of a. a a week or two at a time. Small, you, small doses right. is probably wise. You lived there for what, a year? Yeah, a little more than a year. Something like uh, that. Yeah. What were you doing there? Uh, my wife and I, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, but we, we met in grad school. And uh, as we were approaching graduation, we just decided we wanted to have an adventure. So we bought one-way plane tickets to New Delhi and then figured out what we were going to do after we goaded each other into doing it. So yeah, I um, the first several months I was there, I worked on the launch of a magazine, um, this magazine called The Caravan, uh, which still exists. Uh, it was launched after I left. But so I worked on that, and then I worked as a freelance foreign correspondent. So uh, you know, wrote stories for Western newspapers and magazines. You and your wife seem really badass. Uh, like, she, it's all her. She's courageous. I'm a coward, but uh, yeah, she's uh, hey, she's I mean, really you got brave. On the plane yeah, and then, and then stayed there for a year. So um, that's amazing. But but no, the, the the reason I bring it up is because everything we've been talking about, of course, you know, sort of implicitly is about the U.S. media landscape, right, right. the U.S. news landscape, and maybe you. Uh, have a bit of a broader view on that um, directly with the week, um, but also maybe just in your international experience. Like, are a lot of the things we're talking about specific to the U.S., you think? Or is this more holistic? Um, and in other words, we all have a bad habit, me definitely included, of just sort of thinking about these local problems as just the problems. Yeah. Um, but is this... Is this a global phenomenon or is this really happening here? Uh, I think it's a global phenomenon, but it's worse here than it is in other places. And I mean that in um, what's happening in the media, in what's happening with our politics, in what's happening with our communities. I think that, I mean, at a very macro level, you see a lot of the problems that we see here, the sort of populist backlash or the kind of, you know... Um, um, whether it's white people or working class people or just like, you know... Um, 
uh, traditionalists in Western European countries and, and really throughout the world. Um, you see a lot of things that, you know, Brexit and Trump and, you know, um, even the German elections recently, um, there's a there's a strain of similarity in all of these things. As far as the media goes, um, I do think other markets aren't quite at the same sense of viciousness and advancement <laughs> as as the U.S. Uh, political news and, and digital media space is. But yeah, I mean, these problems are not unique to us. Um, you know, even when I lived in India 10 years ago, um, you could see some of this stuff. And, you know, digital media was barely a thing when I lived in India. Um, you know, it was, it was almost entirely still print. Most people still didn't have phones, or at least, you know, there were dumb phones still. Uh, you know, things are changing rapidly, I'm sure. And I think the India today is, is vastly different than the India I lived in 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, no, it's not unique to us. We're not special in this bad way. I think it's um, it's a problem the Western world over. I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse. Yeah, we're all in it together, man. It's good. Uh, <laughs> I, re- I, read this, uh, I read a thing today um, on Twitter that apparently there's some fake news stories in India that were causing people to uh, commit crimes or something like, you know, sort of like a Pizzagate type equivalent, oh, God, some conspiracy yeah. thing. But the numbers are so big there that you could have large groups of people like going to physical locations and taking action on some fake headline. And I, the whole thing is it's scary. Yeah. It's, it's um, crazy. And, you know, like all the spread of misinformation is powerful here, too. Like even if it doesn't create like a sort of mob somewhere, like the way that it um, again, it just has toxic effects in our politics and in our lives. But, yeah, like, I mean, the more people you have and the more people who are believing misinformation, the more dangerous it becomes, certainly. Is that new in 2017 or we just found out about it? Well, I think I th- think misinformation has always existed, but I think these technologies um, that allow it to spread so easily and so, um, I don't want to say invisibly, but in, in a package that is so similar to, to actual yeah, information. Yeah, like that's what's new is not the misinformation itself or um, the existence of profiteers or mischief makers who want to trade in this stuff. Um, it's the tools that they have that are different and it allows them to v- wield vastly more influence than they have ever been able to. And that's what's different. And that's what's uh, so frightening, frankly. Well, this has been an uplifting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to be okay, people. Uh, well, let's end on a lighter note. How's, uh, how's fatherhood treating you? Yeah, man, it's great. It's great. Yeah, my daughter, is. Uh, she's almost two years old. She's just wonderful. Uh, you know, I just love her so much. Chase her around all the time. She's talking up a storm. She's. It's great. It's Isn't really it great. Best? It's just the best. I mean, it's like... It's like the hardest thing we've ever done, but it's also just by far the best thing we've ever done. And, you know, I'm going to go home after this and you know, she's going to run up to our front door and give me a hug. And like, with all due respect to you, like that will be the best moment of my day. Oh, we will, our timing will be similar and my daughter will be giving me a hug and I'll be thinking this was way better than talking to him. <laughs> totally understandable. Well, thank you so much for coming by. Hey, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. 